Welcome back to Plenary Session Podcast. This is episode seven of the Malignant Book Club. I'm joined by guest host, Dr. Timothy Olivier. Timothy? Hi, Vinay. It's good to see you. Good to see you. How are you, Timothy? I'm fine. Is this the hottest day you've experienced here in the Bay Area today? I think so. I think so. Uh, There are four forecasting i think even hotter tomorrow but oh, uh, wonderful wonderful i'm not sure about that i'm not sure about that let listener know that it's awfully hot here and uh this is a land of limited air conditioning so we're going to be sweltering it out so if you're watching the video and you wonder why they're sweating like it's an interrogation rest assured <laughs> it's the temperature outside it's the temperature outside all right That's so we're getting started we're back here episode seven the malignant book club chapter what is it 10 or 11 um so we finished yesterday with chapter 10. Okay. And now so we're we have starting 11 and, and 12. 12. So we're rounding uh, out yeah, 11 the second part, the third part of the book. We're rounding yeah. out the third part of the book. So, so what are we talking about today? So today yeah. it's the chapter of important trials. I think by this you want to just illustrate the points that you are making before, that you, you were making before. And uh, it's really interesting because sometimes it's, it can be counterintuitive, the findings yeah. you are desc- des- uh, describing. So maybe let's start with this very well-known trial about the marker CA125. And this was a, a very important trial in, uh, I think, in two, 2009. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, so I think this, the purpose of this chapter is really to tell readers about some of the seminal studies in oncology. And, you know, I'm often, I guess I shouldn't be surprised anymore, but, you know, it is kind of surprising that sometimes people graduate Hemonc Fellowship and they don't know all these trials. Um, That to me is a bit surprising because some of these are sort of fundamental classic studies in oncology. And I open with a big one, which is the CA125 study, which I believe was an ASCO plenary session in the aughts, in the 2000 and aughts. Um, And what was this study? I mean, we know what is CA125. It's a crude marker, cancer marker for ovarian cancer. And it's been tested in combination with transvaginal ultrasound as part of a screening test in the PLCO randomized control trial. It failed there. It also uh, plays an important role in, the, in, in following somebody who has documented ovarian cancer. And as the disease responds, the CA125 will fall. As the disease recurs, the CA125 will return. And that was the basis of a randomized control trial. So a woman who's undergone, you know, primary treatment of, uh, of, of advanced or metastatic ovarian cancer, typically surgical debulking, she's being followed. There are two ways you can follow such a woman. You can follow them. I guess there's more than two ways, but there's at least two ways, two ways in this study. One, you follow them clinically and radiographically, waiting for radiographic signs of tumor or clinical decompensation before you say they've progressed in an institute second line therapy, or you do those things and the CA125 blood marker. And the idea was the CA125 blood marker might be a little bit more sensitive. It might detect the cancer when it recurs a little bit sooner that allows the doctor to pounce with the second line chemotherapy a little bit faster. And you know what is going to happen? Women are going to live longer because of the routine surveillance of these ovarian cancer patients with the CA125. And that was the basis of the randomized control trial. So... What was the, the result of the trial? And the result was... So it, 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 <coughs> yeah. First, I think it's, it's really yeah. the proof of principle that you can run trial on strategy, on different strategies. I mean, this is really an example of a, a trial, uh, w- what trial we would like, I mean. Yeah, that's a great point. It's not a trial of a drug. It's not a trial of a device. It's a trial of a strategy. 
the routine application of a blood test. When people say, oh, well, we can't study, you know, uh, with, with, uh, with dynamic, you know, that we can't study the addition of dynamic to routine clinical care or not. Yes, you can. You know, you can study the addition of a blood test, a genomic test to routine clinical care. When we talk about foundation medicine in chapter eight on uh, precision oncology, you can randomize people to getting the foundation results or not and seeing if they have any lick of difference in survival. And this is a similar thing. It's a proof of concept that you can randomize women to different surveillance strategies and measure the hard outcome of how long they live. What did the trial find? The trial found that if you use the CA125, you will find the cancer come back sooner. The PFS curve is precipitous. You find it come back quick. You institute chemotherapy way, way sooner. Way, way sooner you institute chemotherapy. And unfortunately, there's not a lick of difference in overall survival. Yeah. They live just as long. And all you did by using this marker was take whatever days someone had left on this planet and made sure that more of them were receiving chemotherapy. You know, just added toxicity without gain. Yeah. And uh, I think the point, point of added toxicity was also documented in, in this trial. And an interesting point <coughs> here, um, and you talk about this in the book, what happened between before the trial and after the trial in the current, I mean, in real life practice about uh, the use of CA125? Oh boy. And, and I think, you know, the answer, I mean, it didn't change nothing. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. I, I've forgotten, but I, but I think there is, yeah, documented and, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, data from the real world showing that people were doing it before and this trial did not get them to stop. And the reason I would know the answer is that, you know, that's the theme of ending medical reversal, yeah. which is that when there's a medical reversal, it takes people about 10 years, the sort of 10 years of inertia before they start to change. And uh, we document that uh, in, in the first book. And, and I think this is a good example of that in oncology. Yeah. And this time I have the book. You know, astute viewers of the show will know it, it rests behind me on the bookshelf under, under I think, what is that? Under a plant. Uh, but now I've picked it up and I leaf through it. So I'm... Don't look, don't look. Oh, don't look, don't look. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, no, you can look. No, no, sure. I mean, no, supposedly. No. Well, you know, the, no, medical, I, the medical writer wrote it, actually. I don't, the, uh, yeah, the yeah, medical yeah, writer yeah, wrote yeah, the whole book, uh, yeah. Of course, I, 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 of Really, course. really. Like, I, I just mean, said, okay to submit. Okay. okay yeah, yeah, okay to yeah, submit. Yeah. You know, but it was really a, a really unique medical writer to, to know all this stuff in here. I don't know. <laughs> the medical writer did it. All right, so... So yeah, that, I mean the CA one twenty five story is interesting. It's it, yeah. it's also this like classic parable that more information isn't always better. Yeah, you know we always think more information is better is uh, better, uh, but it's not always uh, better. Another thing we have to say in 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 our practice, what we can see that every scan, every laboratory, is the occasion for the patient to be worried about the result. Right, scanxiety, so, so, scanxiety. And this is normal, and uh, I'm not criticizing um, doctors for for doing scans and things, but we have to consider consider this in our practice this is always an occasion for a lot of stress lot of anxiety how will be my result will my ca125 will be higher how much higher and and this <coughs> is also i think a very important point and then and then let me see i don't know if i said this in the book you tell me if i said it um this is also an important reminder that the surveillance for every single other cancer is literally just invented by somebody like we don't have randomized control trials that say with what frequency someone should get chest radiography post testicle cancer mm, treatment. Mm. We don't have randomized control trials mm. in any of the major cancers about how often you should scan them, how often you should draw, you know, uh, CEA, uh, how often you should see them in clinic, how often you should perform physical exam. We've never tested the different surveillance strategies, um, but that's ripe for testing. You know, in large cell lymphoma, I think we do have some data yeah. like why we don't do routine scans if they're PET negative end of treatment, and that's. Well, 
largely leveraging population data from Denmark and from Sweden, and I find that compelling as a good reason not to do it. But if you really put, you, you know, really think about it, we should be running randomized control trials in every single tumor type, randomizing people who've had curative lung surgery or curative colon surgery, curative colon surgery, curative breast surgery to different interval scans. Uh, plus or minus physical exam and a factorial design to maybe even once yearly scans. And if that turns out to be, you know, equivalent or even better, you know, less treatment, uh, less time on treatment, same yeah, OS, yeah. then maybe we even yeah. go to every two years or we yeah, don't do it at all. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, we just don't know. Is that I, in the book? No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe in other parts of yeah. the book, not here, but I think so it's a very important point. It's related to what we were talking in the last episode about. Um, uh, uh, I think you can me be more flexible when you don't have very strong data supporting something. For, for instance, I mean, if somebody wants to take some holidays and maybe CT scan will be delayed after three years of follow-up, maybe if you don't have strong randomized data, you can just relax a bit and, you know, That's well put, I, I, yeah. I think uh, this kind of thing. I uh, think most oncologists are, are like that, of course, but uh, it's an important uh, point. That's to your point, which is that, you know, when you understand the limitations of the evidence, it also helps you knowing when to relax. Mm. You don't have to take mm. everything so seriously. Mm. The mm. things that really do matter, Sometimes, yeah. you know, you take those seriously, yeah. but these things that don't matter, that don't have evidence, you know, mm. maybe you can be a little bit more accommodating. Mm. You know, I think you're right that most oncologists do, especially when they get far out. But you know, a lot of times you should have be a little bit more flexible even early thereafter, because you know, you don't know. Um, and I, I think, uh, yeah, so there are many points. One, you can randomize people to testing strategies. Two, more information isn't always better. Three, um, we, we have very little data about the optimization of surveillance. I do think I say that somewhere in the book. Um, and, uh, and, and, and why don't we have more studies like this? Yeah, yeah. We're now 15 yeah. years later, and we have a paucity of studies. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot of people who are making genomic tests. You can go listen to my videos on dynamic and listen to my videos on um, I think uh, before that, I think I did something, maybe that uh, cancer type um, uh, for cup. Uh, but go, you know, but, but but we have very few well done randomized trials of testing strategies powered for all cause mortality. You know, which is what this was. So, okay. Yeah. Next to your going next for for the next point. Yeah. In the next point, you you are talking about sample size, and you give many examples of when. Phase two randomized clinical trial did, did not translate to the same result in phase three <laughs> trials. So maybe just take one example. I think it's, uh, it's a very striking example in soft tissue sarcoma. Oh, the uh, olartumab yeah. or lartruvo. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, let's get into it. Okay. So accelerated approval has historically meant uh, the approval of a drug product on the, for a unmet medical need condition. Okay, typically dire, rare, and few treatment options. Um, on the basis of a surrogate endpoint thought reasonably likely to predict the hard endpoint overall survival. So we can approve a drug based on response rate and some dire, rare malignancy. Later, we can do a post-marketing study and give it the full approval. That's what accelerated approval is in the law. When Scott Godley was commissioner of the FDA, he wanted to make a little addendum. And he was influenced by friends of cancer research, or as I call them, friends of pharma research. They gave him a little white paper that said accelerated approval should, should be both a surrogate reasonably likely to predict benefit, but also overall survival measured with statistical imprecision. If there's a real big OS benefit in a phase two study, you didn't expect it, it wasn't the primary endpoint, but you saw it, it was a big, big OS benefit, we should give an accelerated approval while they run the phase three. And Scott Gottlieb said, yeah, I like that idea. But there's a big fallacy, okay? Because the uncertainty that comes from measuring a surrogate endpoint with statistical precision is a very different than the uncertainty that comes from measuring a hard endpoint with statistical imprecision. I'll talk about that at the end of this. 
So I think it's philosophically different, it's mathematically different, it's conceptually different, but he went ahead and said, you know, you're uncertain that response rate means OS and you're uncertain that this OS is real. It's the same uncertain, so let's approve it. And the drug he chose as the test case was olertamab, which is a um, uh, sarcoma drug yeah. given in combination with doxorubicin yeah. for typically soft tissue sarcoma. First line. And what's the target? I actually forget the target. Uh, Ola, well, TGF beta or something? Yeah, I don't know. I, I some growth that. signaling molecule. Yeah. It's an antibody yeah, against yeah, some... Yeah. But I forget, yeah. actually. You forget, too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that tells us something. I, I mean, knows. we try to really forget. We, I mean, yeah, you try, you try to forget. Okay, try to forget. Yeah, so I'm not sure. I, 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 listener, you know, you check me on what the target is. But antibody. They ran a phase two study. Um, the phase two study had a, uh, uh, accepted, accepted at a high alpha error. If I recall, it was like a 10, it was 0.1. It's not 0.05. And if I recall, the primary endpoint of the phase two was PFS? PFS. 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 Um, and, and, and. And if I recall, it didn't have a significant... Eight, eight, uh, eight, no, not... Uh, it had a PFS months, benefit, yeah. Eight months benefit in OS survival. In OS, okay. Yeah, but I'm not sure. I, if I recall correctly, um, it, 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 it looked like it was sort of trending to significance for PFS. It had a small benefit, but it had this... And, and, and I forget exactly if it was significant by the 0.1 alpha threshold, but not the 0.05. I think it's something in that ballpark. It was like kind of like, in other words, let me put it another way. It was like, you know, weakly persuasive for PFS, which is the primary endpoint, not really even overwhelmingly persuasive for PFS. But for OS, something crazy happened. There was a huge OS benefit. Yeah. It was a massive OS benefit. I think it was almost like eight months or a year. Yeah. It was huge. Yeah. And this P value on that was very significant. You know, yeah. that was a real, wow, something's going on here. But. It was a small study and a small sample size. It wasn't power to design for OS. And, and you know, um, it might be spurious. And so people may not know, but when you run an underpowered phase two study and you look at endpoints beyond the primary endpoint of the study, not only are you likely to get false negatives, like you're likely to dismiss a drug saying it didn't improve OS when in fact it might, but you're also, when you do get positives, they're much more likely to be false positives or have exaggerated treatment effect and if you question that, go read the paper, Power Failure, by John Yonides and colleagues in, uh, I think, Nature um, Biosciences, Bio, Biopsychological Science, something like that. Um, what's my point here? Scott Gottlieb saw these results. He said, the OS is really, really big. We should approve this product based on accelerated approval. And it did. Lo and behold, came to market. And Eli Lilly started taking the money. 100 million, 200 million, 300 million, 400 million, 500 million. I think ultimately it made 600 Five, million. Yeah. Yeah, five to six hundred million. Yeah, yeah. When the phase three trial comes out, boom, and it is the exact same trial as you know the phase two, but it had yeah. adequate power, and the curves are just plain superimposable. The addition of Lartruvo to doxorubicin didn't add a day of survival benefit. What's the take-home lesson? That twelve months was totally exaggerated. It was totally spurious. It wasn't the primary endpoint of the study. What other trial is like that? Opola BR. Polar BR is a lot like that. That's not the primary endpoint of the study. That's a spurious finding, if anything. And, and that's why um, you should be very cautious about underpowered phase two trials, non-primary endpoints, and large treatment effects. People love it. They say, oh, well, we had an OS benefit. We had no you weren't looking for it. You weren't powered for it. And if you didn't find it, you wouldn't have even reported it. You would have dismissed it, right? It's selective reporting on top of it. Maybe you can explain, because you are explaining this in the book, and it's important because for, for people, it's, it's difficult to understand how this can happen. And you talk about regression to the mean. My understanding is that in early, <coughs> early randomization, you can have imbalanced randomization, and this can explain these kind of effects. And the more you randomize patients, the more when your sample size is adequately um, calculated, then this kind of effect um, are less likely. Yeah. The regression to the mean effect, you, you will tend to have a, a, 
a more a more precise estimation of the true effectiveness. Okay. Yeah. Um, so first, let me say the formal reason it happens. The formal reason it happens is the post-test probability that a finding is true is a product of the alpha, the power, and, uh, and the effect size. I mean, that's a product of these three things. And there's an equation in that paper that when you play with that equation and you drop your power, you realize that your post-test credibility, your post-test probability is true, plummets because power is an instrumental factor in the post-test credibility. So having 80% power is very different than 50% power. And that's why you might get this, you know, and sort of sort of um, the hand-wavy explanation, I think, is a little bit hand-wavy, is, is, is that... I mean, one has to think about not just this trial, but the universe of all trials. I mean, in the universe of all trials, you're running them for response rate or PFS, all these underpowered phase two studies, and many of them find null OS, okay, because the OS is really null. Some of them find negative OS, but no, no manufacturer ever highlights that because that's against their product. And if it's really trending negative, they you know, kind of look the other way and they say, well, you know, that's imbalance, that's random chance. And some find a positive OS, and that's what we're doing here. The other thing is we're looking off and we're stopping early, so we're picking it at the prime, prime moment. And regression to the mean, you know, it literally means that with more data, more events, more sample size, that it will regress to not the mean, but the true effect. Mm. And if the true effect is null, it will regress to the true effect. Um, uh, I, I do think, you know, obviously it's just intuitive that if you randomize two people, chance events can play a role in the survival outcomes. Two people is different than 2,000 people, mm. different than 20,000 people. You know, and so what's the role of these sort of chance events? And it just happened to be that Bob and Bill and Sue, who didn't do well, were on one arm. That plays much bigger role when the sample size is 20 than it does when it's 2,000. Um, you know, that plays some role, but it's also the whole ecosystem. I think we had to go back to the multiplicity point. Like, why is this happening? It's happening because we're churning all, and this mm -hmm. goes to the, mm -hmm. the point I'll make about Gottlieb. We have all these studies going, and you have to think about it. Like, um, if you're allowing the manufacturer to decide when to tell you the OS is promising, okay, back to my point. I said there was a difference between a statistically confident effect on a surrogate endpoint and a statistically imprecise effect on a hard endpoint like OS. I said that at the outset. And the difference is that a statistically persuasive effect on a, on a uh, surrogate endpoint, like response rate, let's say response rate, at the end of the day, you know one thing for sure, this drug does shrink tumors. We'll talk about you know I-131, Tocitumumab, or Bexar soon, because um, I think that's in this chapter. But you know, you know one thing for sure, this drug shrinks tumors. Um, and whether or not shrinking tumors makes someone's live longer, live better, you know, we talked about that in chapters two and three. Um, but if you say we're going to take any OS benefit, even if you weren't looking for it, uh, even if it's statistically imprecise, um, oh, sorry, sorry, back to the point, you, need, you know for sure the drug shrinks tumors. So what's the manufacturer's incentive? To try to find drugs that shrinks tumors. When the more they try to find drugs that shrink tumors, you know, they probably on average will be finding some drugs that actually mm -hmm. help. Because they have to find drugs to shrink tumors. Okay, so now let's talk about the OS. Now Scott Gottlieb says, well, we'll also take imprecise OS. Well, you know, that's uncertain. And now what is the manufacturer's incentive? Now their incentive is not to find drugs that shrink tumors, but to find trials where there is an OS imbalance. And what's the easiest way to do that? Well, one way is to make better drugs, but there's an easier way, and it's just to run a lot of trials. Mm. Just run a lot of underpowered trials, mm. and then cherry pick the ones that are positive, because there's by fluke, by chance, some will have OS drifting one way or the other, and then submit those for accelerated approval. So Scott Gottlieb, by changing this rule, these are different types of uncertainty because the incentives to the uncertainty are very different. One is statistical precision in an uncertain endpoint, which leads the manufacturer to chase that endpoint, find drugs that shrink that tumor. 
But that's actually not a terrible incentive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's bad. It's not perfect, but it's not the worst incentive. But the other incentive that Gottlieb is, is the incentive to find trials with imbalance in OS, which may not have been the primary endpoint. And that leads to the behavior of just running many, many small underpowered phase two studies, praying for a miracle. Okay, so I think he fundamentally changed it. And, and that was what, you know, people don't see. I think, unfortunately, because it was unfortunate, the result didn't, we're not confirming the phase sure. two trial, but unfortunately this trial and this sequence between the phase two and the phase three, because I remember everybody was so en- enthusiastic about the phase two tri- uh, results. Yeah. I think it was a, a very important reminder of all this uh, issue. So we picked this example, but it was a, a, a sad reminder, but an important reminder. Yeah, a seminal reminder. Uh, well, we ran out of space on one card. You know, this this video business is a very data-heavy business. So we ran out of space on a card. We looked up the mechanism of action of Lartruva while we were gone, and it's uh, an antibody directed against uh, PDGFR alpha. Yeah, yes, yeah. A subunit of A subunit of PDGFR. Alpha, yeah, of alpha PDGFR. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm sure there's some listener out there who'll complain. But you know what it is? It's a drug that don't work. Okay, don't work. You don't need to know the mechanism of something that don't work. It don't work. In fact, maybe it didn't hit the... T- no, I don't know. I don't want to get into that. But, you know, you have to try to do some homework as to why it didn't work. Okay. So we're back. We so, picked up yeah. the phase two, uh, this whole thing about underpower. The last thing I'll say, it has a lot of relevance for uh, the oligometastatic world. They've built a they built a whole altar. They've worshipped their, their god, oligomet radiation, all on the basis of phase twos. It would be nice for mm. that religion to get a phase three. We'll see. Mm. But so far, until they get a phase three, I'm going to call it a religion. Mm. When they get a phase three, I'll call it a science, and I'll, I'll start following it. All right. Okay, let's uh, talk about the next point. Uh, I think it's called response rates that go nowhere. Oh, response rates that go nowhere. Okay. So here okay. again, you give a lot of example. I encourage people to read the book again. But uh, I think the most, for me, the most, and I was not aware about this example because I think uh, when I started to practice, it was already withdrawn. Um, the example of iodine-131, tocitumumab. tocitumumab. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Iodine-131, tocitumumab, or Bexar, the radionucleotide, the radionucleotide. And we take a big, potent I-131, and we tie it to an antibody that has an affinity for B cells. And this Bexar, and I think its other partner was a Zevalin, and uh, they were uh, FDA-approved on the basis of a a whopping response rate. Yeah. You know, I love this example because the response rate is whopping. Everyone says, you know, how are you going to argue with a drug with a 30% response rate? That's got to improve OS. And I was like, well, you know what? There was once upon a time a drug with a 60-some percent. What was yeah, it? 60, 68. 68% response rate. And guess what happened to Bexar? It was voluntarily withdrawn by the manufacturer. And if you want to learn more about Bexar, read my paper in JAM Internal Medicine, I-131 Tocitumumab, they... Story of Bexar. But but basically, the long story short is it got approved based on response rate. They ran, you know, I think one study, one randomized study was the post-marketing study. That was negative. I think they then tried to use an ongoing cooperative group study um, to fulfill the post-marketing requirement. Uh, the FDA was reluctant because that cooperative group study didn't have standardized imaging, so it would have some, some, some things about it that were not up to the level of, of registration trials. Um, but ultimately, that trial was also negative. And if I recall correctly, there was a third trial that was also negative. And if you pool all the trials together, you know, it's either negative or like trending towards OS harm. And I think we did that in our paper. Um, and uh, the bottom line is, here's a drug in the lymphoma space um, where you would think a very active drug would have clear and convincing benefit, but it has real toxicity. It's a radionucleotide. 
and in randomized data over and over and over again, it didn't improve survival. And then ultimately the manufacturer with a gun to their head from the FDA pulled the drug. If I, if I may, I think yeah. it's a very good example of the difference you make about activity and efficacy. Mm -hmm. And we talk a lot about that yeah. and I think we'll be talking about that. Uh, and just to hammer that yeah. point, activity means the drug shrinks tumor. What's activity? Response rate, CR rate, M protein falling. Efficacy means you live longer or live better. Overall survival, health-related quality of life. People think activity implies efficacy. It doesn't. If you want to know about that, go back to the video on chapters two and three where I talk about surrogate endpoints. Not everything active is, is effective. Meanwhile, if you're not active, well, you have a very low probability yeah, yeah, of being yeah. effective. That's something that I think I say yeah. somewhere in the book. Yeah, yeah, um, later. I mean, your, later, your, okay. your general point is you should have a, a activity. activity. It's a screen. To push your, your drug, yeah. but it's not a guarantee for It's not a guarantee yeah. for patient And benefit. this is a good example. And then the last point I make is that if you walk around an oncology conference, everyone thinks activity is benefit. They are totally misguided. They've forgotten where, where activity came from. They've forgotten what activity is. Mm -hmm. and it goes back to Mortel. The next point is about, um, uh, is about some trials where we saw s some advantage overall in the population. And later we found that it was actually just for some people based on, on uh, tumor marker, on biomarker selection. You give the example of cetuximab. I think we could, gi we could also give the example of EGFR or many others. But, Tony but, but, paper, but, yeah. but cetuximab, I, I think it's a, it's a very good example. Yeah, so a monoclonal antibody against EGFR used in colorectal cancer, an initial randomized control trial. I think people in who had failed both 5-FU, irinotec, and maybe also Oxali. Oxali was sort of a last-line trial, um, and it was uh, showed survival benefit of cetuximab um, versus what best supportive care in the initial study, and then cetuximab um, I versus uh, irinotecan. Um, and, uh, and okay, cetuximab has a very modest survival benefit um, in, uh, in, in colorectal cancer. It got an approval for sort of all colorectal cancer. Then as time went on, I believe it was the Canadian group in 2008 or nine that identified that there may be at least two populations. Let's say that at least two populations. There are people who get cetuximab who have activating mutations in KRAS and RAS, and those people appear to derive no benefit, maybe even a harm from the drug. And there are people who have wild-type RAS, and they appear to be deriving the benefit, and their benefit is actually greater than the average benefit. So the average benefit we see in colon cancer is a mix of two things, people with RAS who are getting no benefit or even harmed, and people with wild-type RAS who are deriving a bigger benefit. And as time has gone on, we keep moving that bar. We find extended, extended spectrum RAS yeah, testing yeah. and BRAF has implications. And we keep moving that bar and teasing out who's benefiting from cetuximab. That group's getting a bigger and bigger, bigger benefit. And who's not benefiting? And we're pulling them out of the cetuximab um, treatment. And I think it's really important, which we we're about to say, because it has implications for everything in medicine, this kind of example. Yeah. So an important trial and, and uh, in the same, I think. And, and also maybe... In more recent trials, sometimes we, we lag this kind of biomarker selection. Yeah. And uh, it's not really in, that, in this chapter, but um, it's also an important point to make. Yeah, so I mean, I want to make that point, like, let's take a trial the, like Keynote yeah. 177. Okay, MSI high colon cancer yeah. in the front line. But the curves cross. The curves cross. Because there's a fraction of people who get a benefit from Pembro, but there's a fraction of people that only get the benefit from chemotherapy, and they're not getting the benefit from Pembro. And... The purpose of, you know, I mean, I just want to step back and say, when we make inferences about individual patients in cancer medicine, we use group data. The holy grail in all of science is to know the counterfactual. Like, if you have me, me, 
me, me, me, like me in flesh and blood, Vinay Prasad in your office, and we did this, what would happen to me? What would happen to me if we did this other thing? What would happen to me in this other world? But we never know what would happen to you in the multiverse you live in, unless you watch a Doctor Strange movie. I mean, you just don't know what would happen to Vinay Prasad or, or Timothy Olivier. You never know. So how do we make an inference about us? Well, we look at a group of people, and a group of people like you guys, your age, your build, your height, your weight, your medical problems, you know, like you who happen to have this condition, if we randomize those people to this or this, what happens to them on average, okay? But anytime you do that, that effect only applies to the practice on average. And so I know that when I read a clinical trial and there's a convincing OS benefit, I know if I do this trial with everybody like this, I will on average benefit my patients. But I never know for the individual if yeah. they themselves benefit. And the purpose of this stuff where we find RAS, et cetera, is to show you that don't be surprised as time goes on, some smart person realizes, well, there's two groups in there. And it's actually even more complicated than that. There's each individual is getting an individual treatment effect in a counterfactual world. We can't estimate that. The best we can do is just keep carving this up into groups, smaller groups, smaller groups, pulling out the people who really benefit from the people who don't benefit or may be harmed. But you know, all of our therapies have huge groups of people who don't benefit and may be harmed. Very likely. And we should be investing a lot of resources and trying to figure this yeah. out. And, you know, of course, the manufacturers of Pembro and Nevo, they don't want to. They have their nested subgroups rather than adjacent subgroups we've talked about in some publications. They do everything they can because they want the largest market share. They want big market share. They want to give you the drug early, often, for the rest of your life on maintenance. And they want no biomarker selections. So they get the whole market share. But, of course, what the patient wants is more and more biomarkers to pull out people who are really not benefiting um, from those who, who might for, for those in whom it might be worth the toxicity in time. Okay. The last uh, example is about non-inferiority trials. Mm. I think you will be happy to talk about the Reflect trial, non-inferiority trial, Flenvacinib against Sorafenib. <coughs> and it's also an example of many issues related to, related to non-inferiority trials in general. Okay, let's do it. So I guess I would also say that there's some really nice papers you could read. Allison Haslam and, uh, and I have a paper in JNCCN. Uh, I wrote an editorial for a Scott Aberegg paper in JGIM. That's a really important paper. But what's non-inferiority? You know, there are really two fundamental types of statistical design. Superiority, you're going to show me you're better than something else in terms of some endpoint. Or non-inferiority, you're going to show me you're not worse than something else. You're no worse than something else. You're not worse. You're not inferior. But it's not worse than some margin or some delta. You know, yes, I could be a little bit worse than that, but I'm no worse than whatever this acceptable margin or delta is. Okay, so that's a non-inferiority trial. I'm not worse than, you know, upper bound hazard ratio 1.08. I think that's what it was in this study. I'm not worse than, you know, 80% of the treatment effect of the drug. I'm not worse than, you know, the drug has a three-month survival benefit. I'm at least a two-month survival benefit. But there's some margin or delta that you're going to show that your drug is at least that good as the parent drug or the parent intervention um, and no worse than that margin delta. But what are the things you need to know? Number one, you should never run a non-inferiority study unless you have a pre-specified rationale. What's the rationale? Your new drug got to be cheaper, it's got to be more convenient, or it's got to be less toxic. And if it's not cheaper, if it's not more convenient, if it's not less toxic, do not pass go. You should not run an inferiority study because why on earth would someone want to take a drug that might be worse than the other drug, but it's actually the same price or more expensive. It's equally a pain in the ass to take. And uh, I made a mistake. Uh, let's, 
Oh. I was yeah, supposed yeah, to yeah, not yeah, swear. Yeah. <laughs> or the oh, toxicity, yeah. it's uh, it's uh, it's equally or more toxic. So let's talk about let's talk about. So we went from P I think that was PG-13. That wasn't rated R. PG-13 by saying by saying Oh, uh, okay, okay, okay. No, I think it was, uh, it was it was better than better than, than before. It could be yeah, worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be worse. It, it would I'm, be better. I'm within the margin, yeah. the non inferiority yeah, margin yeah, yeah, of yeah. what we pre-specified. Yeah. I see. Okay. Maybe so, 0.6. 0.6, yeah. <laughs> So, okay, so what's the point here? Okay, now we talk about Lenva, Serafinib. Serafinib is the standard of care based on the SHARP study in advanced yeah. or metastatic HCC. Uh, those patients were mostly good child PU status. Lenva comes around. Here comes Lenva. Lenva wants to run a non inferiority study. I think the upper bound hazard ratio was 1.08, meaning that they had at least 60% of the therapeutic efficacy yeah. of serafinib, which, if you ask me, is not that great because serafinib wasn't that great to begin with, but they're running their study. But let's ask the questions. One, is Lenva cheaper than serafinib? No. Uh, is Lenva more convenient than serafinib? I can't make the same thing, uh, but... No. <laughs> is Lenva less toxic than serafinib? Uh, uh, so should they even run an non-inferiority study? Uh, no, they shouldn't. You should not be allowed to run an non-inferiority study. This is violating the basic principles of non-inferiority. So that's the first mistake. The second mistake that we didn't talk about, we need to talk about, the margin. They're picking these margins. Do I want a drug in metastatic unresectable HCC that's only 60% good as, as, as serafinib? No, I want a drug that's better than serafinib. Well, serafinib wasn't that good. What are you talking about at 60% is good? Get out of here. That's not good enough. And we know in the paper that Allison and I did, that if you look across non-inferiority studies, they often favor the manufacturer because they pick a margin super big. And the analogy I always tell people is it's like a driving test. You know, you go on that driving test, you got to drive, make a left turn, put the signal and do all this. I think the last time I did it, I was 15 years old or something. It's been a long time. But the last thing you got to do is parallel park a car. And, you know, I think I did it in, oh my God, my parents used to have like a 1985 Dodge Caravan. No, maybe 88 Dodge Caravan. I had to parallel park that. It wasn't easy to parallel park. And they, they pull up to a spot. They say, parallel park that thing. I say, oh my God, I parallel. But I did it and I passed the test. But parallel parking is the analogy because it's difficult to parallel park your car in a space that's the exact size of your car. But after years of living in Chicago, I became able to do it. I can parallel park a car with one inch on either side because that's what it takes to live in Chicago, my friend, and not pay parking. If you live in Hyde Park neighborhood, circa 2005, that's what you gotta do. Okay, but it's a lot easier to parallel park a car if the space is as big as a school bus. You don't need any skill or talent. And that's what a non-inferiority study is. If the margin is so big, you can parallel park a school bus in it, well then it's really not telling me that much. Um, you know, we have non-inferiority studies when it comes to the DOACs and Coumadin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think those were the sort of the main principles. There's a lot more in the book, I think. Yeah, uh, I think one important finding was in only 30% of trials, they were justifying the, the choose of the margin. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, uh, this was the work, I think, with Alison. Yeah. They, there's another work where they find that out of uh, 57 trials, 55 trials were positive. I mean, 96% of trials of were... Industry-sponsored, yes. Industry-sponsored, non-inferiority, were positive, so... It doesn't tell, this really tells you about, uh, I mean, are you just guaranteeing your results by the design with a large margins? And, and I think like one of the authors of that study said something like, if you're running trials where 97% of the time you get what you want, if you're really running trials like that, then you know what? Let's, let's, all, let's just all say you don't have to spend the money 
and you don't have to squander the patient's time, I will just concede to you mm. that you're not inferior. I mean, if you're running trials consistently with a 97% success rate, don't even wait. Let's not randomize patients. There's real human beings, you know? Let's not waste their time, make them do blood draws, all this bullshit, uh, all this uh, unnecessary all things. things. All these unnecessary things. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just concede that you're not inferior because 97% of the time you're going to be there anyway. And so I think it's a really telling point that trials have to also sometimes be negative for them to be mm. worth running. Mm. If they're always positive, you don't need to be running mm. them. Mm. And in this case, it's not always positive because all these drugs are so wonderful, the more plausible mechanism. And, and the reason that is the case, because then when you run superiority trials, they're not 100% positive. The more plausible mechanism is you're gaming it, man. You're gaming the non-inferiority study. You got a margin so big you can park a school bus in it. Um, you're, you're doing it where it don't make sense. Um, and why are you doing that? Because you want to make your company rich. I get it. But the FDA should say no. They should say no. Yeah. But they don't. So now we will go to a positive note. But okay. it's not finished. Okay. Which example of very good trials? And I give you a, I give you a hint. Oh boy! No, no, no! I give you a hint. Oh God! I'm gonna look at it. There were, there were Chop, and the biggest advance since Chop was invented uh, was the addition of rituximab. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's that's one of the things I was thinking about. I think yeah. it's in my thread too of the trials I really love. Um, you know, there are at least two studies, to my knowledge, and maybe even more, randomized controlled trials with overall survival as the primary endpoint showing the addition of rituximab to CHOP and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, or DLBCL, has a survival advantage. Um, and the first one was in people over the age of 65. Yeah, yeah. So like, wow, they took like the older patients who like are always neglected from trials, they gave them CHOP or CHOP plus rituxin, and they show that curative fraction is higher with the addition of rituximab, and then they did it in everybody. And rituximab has been a revolutionary drug. And so like, what are the strengths of that? Well, you have a really good drug. You targeted a population that was vulnerable that needed something. You, 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 you went for overall survival. You achieved it. I mean, what's not to like? I think that's great. I mean, and I think that's a drug where there's no dispute. I mean, I don't think anyone ever said CHOP is better than like, oh, what am I getting from adding the R to CHOP? Mm. You know, we know from CHOP and promisatabam and all that stuff that maybe there's a ceiling effect you know, we were talking about this the other day. Yeah. There may be a ceiling effect to what you get from chemotherapy or yeah. cytotoxic, yeah. but rituxin unlocks something yeah, that you weren't yeah, able to get. Yeah. And then it also say, the listener will know, rituxin also changed the game on CNS relapse. You know, all the CNS relapse mm -hmm. rates started to plummet. And so a lot of our thinking on CNS relapse, which by the way is based on nothing, really no good randomized studies, it should be revisited in the era of rituxin and it really should be revisited in the modern era. Um, and good people like Toby Ayers and Graham Collins, et cetera, are trying mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. But really, you know, gosh, would it kill us to do a single randomized trial on CNS prophylaxis so we might have an ounce of data in this sea of opinion and nonsense? Okay. So you give many other mm -hmm. examples in this chapter, so I, I reconvey the, the listeners to Just to one example out. from each section, because there's yeah, a lot. Yeah, and so I tried, I tried yeah. just to pick one in, yeah. in each uh, uh, sub subsection. Um, do you have final thoughts about this chapter of important trial right, before we go to global, global oncology? I think you, you, your main point is uh, that there are some trials you, you should know, even if they are old, even if they are not relevant to your practice, like uh, the example of Lartrubo, <laughs> because it, it really helps you to appraise the modern trials. And I think it's really the point of this chapter, right? Yeah, I mean, what is the point of this chapter? I mean, I guess I'd say 
you know, if we go back to the beginning, the, the, the introduction sets out this idea of the story of autologous stem cell transplant where people were seduced by response rate and measure of drug activity. The money comes in and, you know, they start doing it. And then it turns out they do six randomized control trials and they don't improve outcomes. And there's a lot of toxicity. And you're like, you finish that and you're like, oh my God, their whole book's written about that. What a terrible chapter in oncology. You know, surely they learned those lessons. They internalize those lessons. They'll never make those mistakes again. And then the book starts opening, you know. Let's talk about the drugs, what they've, you know, the first section, um, cancer drugs, the outcomes they improve and at what price. And we talk about, you know, how well they work and, and what's the evidence and, 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 and how much they cost and what's the dollar per quality. Then we talk about surrogate endpoints and the story of Mortel and the dining, dining table. Um, and we've talked about it. And then we talk about like, what, what does high drug prices really mean to a society? And, and that should all give you pause like, hmm, maybe this problem is deeper than just the introduction. Then the second part, the societal forces that distort cancer yeah. medicine, the part that I think is the most important that uh, some some astute reader said it should have been cut, but no, it shouldn't have been cut. No, no, no. It's the root of it. And the root of it is like why human beings are optimistic and their spin and there's financial conflicts and all this stuff. And precision oncology is like, at least for a few years, is like the culmination of all our biases and all the money and all that stuff coming together. And then the third part, which we have been slogging through on this podcast over and over again, because it's the, I mean, to some degree, it's the hardest to explain. It's the most technical part. How to Interpret Cancer Evidence and Trials. And I start about Study Design 201, you know, teaching about observational studies and all these things. Principles of Oncology Practice, you know, these tried and true, you know, not ancient, but relatively, you know, um, uh, uh, powerful and persuasive and agreed upon principles that we were doing until very recently. And then important trials in oncology just give us some history, some lesson. And I would say, you know, and this is, you know, um, not to sound arrogant or anything, but I would say that, like the one thing that if I was a fe if you if you're like a fellow in Hemonk, the one thing that you should read is section three. I mean, I, I think you should read the whole book because by the end I'll try to tie it all together. But you really need to know section three, and it's the thing that I think like you could go a whole you could go a long time in oncology without learning all these things. Sometimes you you barely get a glance of it in fellowship, and then you learn it on your way as an attending. Sometimes you don't even learn it there. Um, but what's the goal of this section? This goal is the section is like, this is what, you know, most of the research we're doing is in this space. This is what our laboratory focuses on. Trying to understand how do you make sense of evidence for people in front of you? And, and I think you need to know a lot of these things. Great. On that positive note. Great. So, all right. So let's close this video. We'll pick up uh, the next video. This is uh, episode seven. Yeah, episode seven. Malignant Book Club. Timothy Olivier from Geneva Hospitals. Practicing Vinay Prasad. Vinay Prasad from 